This is Alicia, and welcome to the College Life Podcast. I am super passionate about education, personal development, growth, and bringing out the best in every college student. This podcast will help motivate you, empower you, and bring you clarity and confidence in who you are, in your purpose, and help you take action toward a life you love. Don't wait until you graduate to live your best life. Let's start now. What's up and welcome to the College Life Podcast. It's Alicia here and today I am interviewing a friend of mine, Tim Grassley. He works for University of Colorado Boulder and he does a lot of marketing and branding for the College of Arts and Sciences and he's been doing some research about really beliefs and assumptions about majors and we're going to talk about those today. It's going to be so much fun and his story is really awesome because he actually started out wanting to be an engineer and then somehow ended up in marketing and branding and he's done a lot of different things and you will all even believe the path that he's taken. So I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the College Life Podcast. It's Alicia here and today I have with me Tim Grassley and I actually work with Tim in the College of Arts and Sciences here at CU Boulder. So we are going to talk all about your college journey and really about students in the College of Arts and Sciences and just arts and sciences in general across this country and really across the globe. So I'm super excited to hear your story. So why don't we start there? Um, How did you choose your college? Where did you end up going? Yeah. Um, We'll start there. So um, my college journey was a little bit more uh, last second adaptation. So I I grew up um, really from my earliest days thinking that I would be an engineer. So I loved Legos, I loved building things, and the affirmations that my parents sent my way that I was hearing, we can talk more about that, but the the ones that I kind of, that stuck were things around engineering. The, it seemed to make sense, that, that idea of I loved identifying a problem and then building something in response to that problem. So engineering seemed like a decent fit. I also was gaining a lot of accolades for being fairly good at math. Uh, so I, I was in all of the various advanced math classes and several advanced science classes, and people would tell me, teachers um, and uh, fellow students, that I got it in ways that they did not, and that felt good. Uh, so I think a lot of those affirmations led me to think I was going down the engineering path when I was exploring colleges, I explored a lot of engineering colleges, Texas A&M in particular, um, University of Oklahoma, and I was exploring Cornell and a couple of other very specific engineering schools. Uh, and in the process of doing that, there was this uh, kind of culture that I was feeling at several of those universities of a high competition, sort of dog-eat-dog uh, it's just a wildly competitive atmosphere. Texas A&M in particular, uh, they uh, took us on a tour of their engineering space and gave us every reason not to attend Texas A&M's engineering school because it would it would be a hard, miserable four to ten years. Pretty much was the, the kind of lack of a better term that kind of just talk. So there wasn't a lot of people who were talking about how great 
the college experience in engineering was. Um, juxtaposed to, um, I was also enjoying my English classes. I was enjoying this prospect of articulating a point of view that was not my own and doing so as beautifully as I could. I had really wonderful literature teachers in high school as well. So it was something that was like, oh, that, you know, that's exciting and interesting. When I applied to schools, um, I applied to just two, which is funny to think about now. Because um, right now people are applying to like 10. 12, yeah, yeah. 10, 15. Um, and which, FYI, is really fascinating because just as an aside, the pool is shrinking. So the total number of students who are college ready, college ready is, you know, but uh, students, the, the, the pool is actually contracting. It's much smaller. So schools are shifting, and we'll talk about this with our studies, but shifting their posture because they're having to start competing for students rather than students competing for them, which is an interesting change mm -hmm. recently. Um, the, the millennials are done pretty much is the shift, but, um, uh, that side. Uh, so yeah, I only applied to two. One of them was a large public institution, which had a very good engineering school. Um, and the other was a really tiny liberal arts college, Whitworth University. And when I went and did a visit there, I, um, discovered, like, people really recognized I felt appreciated compared to the engineering colleges where it sounded like everyone was in an antagonistic posture to one another at Whitworth. Everyone was pretty excited about everybody else who was there. It was very community oriented and that heavy emphasis on community was a, what I think I needed uh, at that point in time in my life. I was a wildly shy person who did not have phenomenal social skills. Uh, and a safe environment where regardless of my social abilities, people still appreciated me. Faculty still wanted to get to know me, even as a prospect. Uh, it just was, I mean, it was like, this was night and day as far as the, the campus tour experience was concerned. So then I went, they, at Whitworth, they had a computer science program. Um, so I went in double majored in computer science and English lit. Uh, and, um, my first year, I, the CS curriculum is built in a way that, that in, it, it's more or less intellectual hazing is the best way to describe it, that they teach you very high coding, which is, um, really detail oriented and arduous, hard, hard work. Uh, and you go line by really character by character, figuring out how to create very simple um, if then statements pretty much that, you know, I, I want to input, you know, when you're, when you're in C language, it's a, it's a language. Um, <laughs> you, when you're, when you start off, you basically start off by telling a computer to recognize that you are trying to input data into it. That's step one. And it's hard work. And then you learn how to get the computer to output data. And then you get the computer to figure out how to blend those two and create functions. It's, it's slow. It's very tedious. Um, and in my CS class, we, it, it had that same vibe that our faculty member would, would tell us that we were just idiots. That if we didn't get it, that it wasn't, if it wasn't easy, we should really think about 
going a different direction because this was the this was coding at its easiest from this point of view. Which in retrospect, now after now having learned a lot more about different coding languages, is in fact false. But, but, but you believe that, right? But yes, 100%. As a student, you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. I must be an idiot. Right. Um, despite getting very, very good grades, um, getting A's, I still, I was somebody who fought through every, every character, every line to mm-hmm. try and understand what was happening. Um, uh, which was unfamiliar territory for me. Things didn't, didn't like. I was one of those students who could, who was really accustomed to high levels of achievement and things coming fairly easy to me. And this didn't. Um, in juxtaposition, I was taking literature classes and creative writing classes that were primarily focused on reading great works and then trying to embody the author um, and the historical moment wherein those great works were written and then trying to understand why um, a particular point of view would be brought about in writing and also digesting why we found it appealing or beautiful or terrible and then arguing one point of view or the other which was arduous really hard work um, a lot of reading, uh, paper, like really long papers, having to spend hours and hours and hours writing, writing, writing. And I loved every minute of it. I think in part because our faculty members were really hoping to push the idea that it, the idea that you were presenting, it didn't matter necessarily whether or not it was bulletproof, like as far as the code, if you were to translate that into coding whether or not it worked doesn't matter it's it's doesn't make sense um can you argue beautifully in its behalf and we're really encouraging people that um, they were affirming their points of view which i think i needed at the time um uh and telling me uh, this is hard work. Keep working at it. Like it didn't. I actually did worse in my literature classes my first year. So this is this is where grading is fascinating to me. But so my my grades were not as good in my lit classes as my computer science classes. But the faculty were really communicating that my point of view was valid and that I was on the right track toward being able to argue beautifully on its behalf. And so at the end of my first year, um, I sat down with advisors for both lit and computer science. And my, my lit advisor gave me terrible curricular advice, mm-hmm. um, which was, yeah, you could do anything with a lit major. Just, just do it. Um, and it's fun. You'll have fun. Uh, and then, and I, and I thought, yeah, I will have fun. That sounds great. And then my computer science faculty gave me really what amounted to really good advice, which was career advice, which was if you finish a lit degree and a computer science degree at the time in the early 2000s, there are probably 10 people in the world who have that. This is just not normal. You don't, you don't see people approaching problem solving from those two distinct points of view, from wildly detail-oriented and macro. Uh, so I would not want for a job. And I responded with, but you're a jerk and everything about what you've told me about computer science sounds awful. And 
there, this just is, it's, I just can't, I just can't, I can't do four years of you. Uh, so I dropped CS despite doing quite well in it and moved on to English Lit. So let's stop right there yeah. for a second because there is so much in your story already yeah. <laughs> that I want to like dive into. Um, okay. So first off, you kind of grow up in this mentality of you're getting rewarded for doing really well in these math courses and it feels good. Mm-hmm. That feels so good <laughs> whenever yeah. we get rewarded for being especially like smart or intelligent and I'm using mm-hmm. air quotes for the people who are listening. Um, and then you also said... So you were getting accolades, you were getting affirmations around this, and then you were also, you just said it made sense, mm-hmm. right? When all of these things kind of add up, you're just like, yeah, this mm-hmm. makes sense. But then it's interesting because you didn't even go to an engineering school, you went to computer science. So mm-hmm. for people who don't understand that logic, like what was kind of going on in your head, I guess, during that time? Yeah. It, it, <laughs> um, so... In part, it was because I think as an 18-year-old, I, I didn't necessarily, like, parsing out the difference between engineering and computer science was, I, I think I, I had too simplistic a point of view of what the engineering field was. Okay. Um, in part. But I think really what it comes down to was how I felt on each campus individually. The, the computer science was an okay alternative to a hard and fast engineering school, something that, you know, has engineering in the name. Mm-hmm. Um, because the campus life at Whitworth was just so much better than what was communicated at all of the large engineering schools things that you know, more read about or researched online. That what engineering schools really brought forward was we do cool stuff. Like I, I still remember some of the advertisements that I received from the Cornell made, you know, cell-sized violins, things like that. Um, so really cool. Whitworth, what you got was when you arrived on campus, um, a faculty member would actively want to know who you are and where I was, where I, who I was, where I was from, and why I would consider Whitworth, and then tell me everything that was great about this community. Um. And I think that's just what I needed. Uh, so the, 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 the switch in part was that I think, yeah, that, that, that what I wanted to, computer science was an okay alternative to engineering because the community was just so much better um, at Whitworth. It was just safer and more nurturing, which I think as a shy person to be a shy, painfully, socially awkward person, uh, that sort of being recognized to somebody saying, I see you, and not only do I see you, but I appreciate that you're a unique individual with a, with a fascinating point of view that I want to know more about. Um, from a faculty, hearing that from a faculty member and from all of the students that I met, I mean, that just felt really different. So how did people respond, like family, friends, whenever you kind of decided to maybe not do engineering and do computer science and go to this small school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So my family, uh, even though I thought what I, the messaging that I was hearing from my family, this is what's interesting is uh, a lot of math 
accolade. Um, my, my family actually praised a lot of different facets of my character. So my mom would tell me that I was an empathetic person who noticed. My dad would always talk about the, the fact that I would notice things and that it was an observer. Uh, and so they would say, and that could be really incredible in nursing. That could be really incredible in, you know, something else that doesn't exist yet. We just want you to explore what major feels best to you. So when I picked Whitworth, they they were thrilled as thrilled to be. I think they were just excited that it was going to college. Mm. Um, and when I picked Lit, they um, also were thrilled. My mom, who has kind of the what the message that my mom received growing up was as a woman um she could be either a teacher or a nurse and she thought well nursing seems like a decent career and then went very specialized right from the start and she regretted it um pretty pretty actively and that informed a lot of her choices in her later career but when i picked literature my mom's response was i'm really proud of you i wish i would have picked college I just wasn't I don't remember what what she actually said in particular but she felt like literature would have been a better fit for her than nursing and so I had very I had a lot of affirmation from the people that mattered most to me and Texas leaving Texas is kind of a statement so that's all people really that it didn't really matter where you went as long like once you leave Texas it's like wait what are you doing um, and so, um, uh, most of the friends of mine, uh, thought, um, well, are you, are you enjoying it? Is it interesting? So forth. And yeah. That's really awesome that you did have that support because I, and it's interesting too, that you had the support, even though maybe you didn't even think that, mm-hmm. or you thought you were getting these one messages, mm-hmm. but you were really getting all these different messages. But for some reason, the math stood out, right. Or, right. or like Yeah, that's so interesting because I see students all the time and they feel that way. They feel like, why would I do lit? Why would I do sociology? Like I've heard this multiple times this semester already. Like there's something to be looked down upon, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think part of it, there's a lot of anxiety in our culture right now around getting a job Mm -hmm. and around picking the right quote unquote thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I, I, I get, I get some of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm also like, yo, you don't value anything else, but what people have told you, mm-hmm. you know, and there's not like some of that is reality and some of it's actually not some it's stuff that people have just told you. Mm-hmm. And it's a narrative that's just being told over and over again. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you get into literature. Mm-hmm. What was that like that transitioning was completely phenomenal. into? Yeah. Uh, so I think. I mean, again, the interesting thing was I, I had two faculty mentors um, at in my program, and one of them was probably the most empathetic. She was, she's a poet, and she was probably the most empathetic, kind person out there. And then I had almost, it was almost like good cop, bad cop. My other <laughs> faculty mentor was, was known as being probably one of the harder faculty at our college, both in terms of... Um, the way he taught, which was he would walk in, drop a bunch of books on the podium, and then just start talking. And it was assumed that you would remember every detail. Uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, a lot of what I was realizing in literature was 
I was gaining a capacity to empathize with the point of view that isn't my own. Uh, in retrospect, I, d- I didn't realize this at the time. I was just kind of like in survival mode, just get through yeah. every assignment. But literature uh, and creative writing in particular um, really helped me step into somebody else's shoes and then try to articulate that point of view as beautifully as I could. Um, so that that capacity for empathy and speaking to um, rapidly adapting to a different point of view as well was a and that ended up being a phenomenal life skill for me. Um, but the the program itself was just was just wonderful. It was it was wonderful to read a ton of different books and points of view um, and try to understand them. We read widely, like from uh, life before Plato all the way up to now from different countries around the world and um, uh, a lot of a lot of different genres and, and so forth and that breadth was just fun and exciting um, because every class brought forward new content that I didn't understand and spent a semester trying to understand it, the faculty even though the difficult professor Doug was really hard um, he was also really nurturing as well. He would, as long as you were willing to put the effort in. Mm-hmm. This was interesting when you juxtapose, thinking about it now, juxtaposing it to my first semester course in computer science. A lot of the the structure of the course was comparable. That Doug broke essay writing, for example, down into this highly detailed, methodical process. You created a thesis statement, so we had a thesis writing exam and it was stressful and terrible and then you had to begin the process of compiling an argument and supporting it with evidence doug would cross out entire sections of papers and tell us to rewrite them Uh, and it was it was really it was really exhausting really challenging um, very detail oriented Um, but when i would go to his office hours and say i don't know what to do he would say great let's talk about it versus not great you should be understanding this which is i think that sort of external validation from a person in position in in a position of authority was i i think it's still important yeah i mean i think it kind of goes back to grading and learning Mm -hmm. right so you're talking about grading and how you said oh the grading system or you know it was interesting you were learning more from your literature class Mm -hmm but it was harder and you weren't doing as well academically. Mm-hmm. But then your computer science, you were actually doing better in, but you were also being told that if you, if this isn't, doesn't come easy, this isn't for you. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. So, so what you're saying is grades don't matter. No, yeah. Kidding. Well, I mean, I, I'm starting I to come to that conclusion. There's, so there's a book, David Epstein wrote a book called range. Why generalists thrive in a specialist world. Um, Epstein's whole narrative is that we have stepped into a time that really prizes specialization. Mm-hmm. It's the 10,000 hours narrative that Malcolm Gladwell brought out in Outliers that um, people have interpreted the 10,000 hours narrative as this is the reason why you need to get there sooner. You need to know that you're going to be an engineer when you're two years old because then by the time you get to be 23 and graduated, you've already spent 10,000 hours basically doing engineering so you'll be successful. You'll be You'll be that outlier. P.S. If everybody's outliers, nobody's an outlier. But anyway, um, Epstein wrote 
that uh, the process of generalists tend to thrive um, to an even greater extent than specialists, usually later in life, because they spend a lot of time accumulating experiences that compile or synthesize into, into a particular interest that they really run with, and usually comes late, usually in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, but they can fundamentally alter the the world that they are existing in. Um, but in that book, uh, he found a study run out of the Air Force Academy that uh, the Air Force Academy is unique because every student takes the same math class throughout their four years over eight semesters. And so everybody, you, it's almost like a cohort model. So everybody's taking Calc 1, Calc 2, and so forth. And what the study tried to figure out was whether or not there was any correlation between first semester success or failure and final semester success or failure. And what they found was it was inverted, that uh, a student that did well um, in their first semester of calc usually were performing less well by their eighth semester. Students who struggled, um, uh, usually, you know, like C students, um, still passed but struggled, often by their eighth semester were outperforming their peers, were the higher performers. So the conclusion that the researchers drew and that Epstein runs with is that failure is actually indicative of learning, which is the, that is the opposite message of what we tend to communicate in, in higher ed institutions. That we, um, I was interview I interviewed someone in the honors program and we talked about um, as students, he and I both were, were students that did quite well in college, and and we discussed what we did very well, and still do very well, is rapidly adapt to a faculty member's expectations. That's where I excel. Mm. Um, I I can very quickly, usually within two to three classes, figure out what a faculty member holds most dear. And I can adjust my work to meet that very quickly. And so I tend to be really successful in my classes that um, I can give, basically I can give a faculty member what they want um, and do it quite well. And that, as a marketer, that's a great skill. Which um, is what you do now, right? right? It is what marketing. I do now. <laughs> right. So being able to rapidly empathize or understand what an audience wants and then and offer it to them quickly. It's also what made me a really good advisor that I could figure out what a student wanted really quickly, like probably within a few minutes, and then deliver that probably nine times out of ten. But it wasn't necessarily learning. That was adapting a skill set that I already possessed and then just serving it up fast. Um, I think that's why Doug and another faculty member um, were important to me because they read through that. They, they were able to separate Okay, you're just giving me what I want to hear. Instead, say, okay, let's let's figure out how to push this a little bit further. Let's dig out a little bit more creativity so that you can show me your learning. I think it also helped that I was learning in lit. I, this was unfamiliar territory. I was a math person up until then. But yes, I, I mean, I am starting to think that grades have a wonderful ability of showing, it can show a person's quantity of work. Um that the degree to which a person cares about um, a course and wants to put in time and effort, it can. 
Um, it can. I like that. It it yeah. did in my case, right? Like I w- I really was working harder than my peers, and so being rewarded with a grade, you know, to me it was working. Um, I think it it can also, especially in an institution where even with generous probationary policies like we have, can cause a student to with higher ed being so expensive can cause a student to think, oh, this isn't for me. I can't do this because it's, I'm not succeeding from the outset. Um, can be, I think it can leave what is potentially amazing students out of a major simply because they're not being successful right away. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I hear, even I mean, well-intentioned people say after a single semester, of not doing well in a course this maybe this isn't for you versus something that's a little bit more proactive like well tell me walk me through what you tried that i i just i think i'm coming to the conclusion that grades have a lot of potential to do good things for very specific students um and it can also hinder departments in ways that perhaps they did not yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love my role here so much is that I get to challenge that with students, but it's such an individual basis that it's like it's a drop in the bucket of what students are experiencing across the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're starting to think, well, I didn't do well in this class, so this must not be for me. Mm-hmm. And it can be so easy to find other people who are telling you that same thing that you're thinking. Mm-hmm. So then you're just like, it's confirming what you believe mm-hmm. about yourself. So then you like change a path. Mm-hmm. Or you think that, well, I can never do this type of career ever, right. when maybe you could get there in a different way completely. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So you did literature, and then now mm-hmm. you're in marketing, right. and which I think is completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Like, I would never have thought in a million years. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess let, let's talk about maybe that journey. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you get, what were the kind of steps that led you to where you currently are? <laughs> okay. Um. And then I'd love to learn more about like what you love about your job right now too. Yeah. I think that that does help students and then we'll transition into the research. So uh, the, the short answer for my career pathway was I graduated. So like I said, my faculty mentor, my faculty advisor uh, with a lit background, not Doug, not Pam, not Lori, but another faculty member who I dearly love, uh, who basically said, you can do anything. Um, I, I had no idea how to apply a lit degree. And I didn't have anybody in my family who had a lit degree to be able to model a journey after. Um, Most of my peers were going immediately to grad school. They were on the PhD track. I moved to Austria and was a landscaper on the grounds of a castle. So for free room and board, I moved big rocks and mowed lawns and I helped um, flip a 17th century tavern and turn it into staff housing. So that was awesome. It's so random. Um, yeah. Um, so that's, I mean, it was a, a big part of it wasn't just, I, I wanted an adventure to prove that I could go on an adventure. And I thought, why not? I was in a position where I didn't have much debt to pay. Um, the debt that I had, I could cover with the very low, uh, the very low uh, salary that they gave me, as well as um, some giving from my family which was helpful. <laughs> um, but my debt payment wasn't huge, so I didn't feel that urgency to rush in. Um, but anyway, so I, I was able to do that, which was amazing. 
Um, I came back and was a carpenter for a little while. Um, I shifted into grant writing uh, for a, a really amazing organization, the Latino community-based organization that helps underrepresented people um, become self-sufficient in a difficult city to be self-sufficient um, in Seattle. I did that for a little while. Um, I was a blogger for like a half second. And then my partner and I moved to India. We helped um, a group of uh, Indians found an anti-trafficking organization called Courage Homes. It provides um, aftercare for survivors, child survivors of the sex trade. It's amazing. Um, yeah, it was, it was a gift of an experience, also super random. Um, it's fun to know that that is still running uh, today. They're still doing good work, yeah. Um, we also, then we moved back to the States, hoping to get a little bit more credential. We, we realized when we lived in India that we would need more credentialing to be able to stay, mm. um, because India was starting to make it a little bit more difficult, just like everybody else in the world, make it a little bit more difficult to stay on temporary visas. So, and which is what we had. So in order to get a true work visa, like India's version of a green card, we would need to have higher credentials. So we came back with that intent. I was a, a, a barista at Starbucks for a year while waiting for my grad school applications. And did grad school for a little while. And in grad school, I had what's called a graduate service appointment where I was an advisor for a great little program that was up there. We offered advising for first-gen students and, um, and underrepresented populations. Um, and I loved it, loved that a lot. And when I was, when we moved after our grad program, moved back to Colorado to be with family, I kind of was bouncing around, looking at a lot of different things. And CU Boulder was the first place that gave me a call for an advising position. So I was an advisor uh, for two years. Then I was promoted into a position to train advisors, managed the professional development and training for advising, and then um, was encouraged to focus exclusively on communications within advising um, because it was it was a gap that that they identified. And from there, the position morphed into more prospect-facing and student-facing communications rather than through advising. So I became more or less a marketing arm for the College of Arts and Sciences for prospective students. Yeah. So pretty circuitous. Which is so fun because if you wanted to even go outside of higher ed now, you've got all these experiences and skills and training, development. Mm -hmm. um, so you could stay in education and really make an impact here. Mm -hmm. And you can also go outside of this and even do consulting work or mm -hmm. build a business or work for a business. Right. It's, I mean, there's so much fun stuff that you can do still. Mm. And it's like, it's so exciting, I think, to yeah. see like how your opportunities have. And then, I mean, there's so many things that you've done in your life. Mm -hmm. I think it's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, I mean, it's a funny resume. <laughs> it's a really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I used to joke that I had, um, uh, a little bit of a, I, I mean, I didn't really hold a job for longer than 18 months up until I came to see you because my interests would change so rapidly and I would just kind of follow whatever that interest was. And the result was accumulating those experiences that have brought me to marketing. And yeah. Yeah, giving it a good go. 
And I think too, you were also open. So even just, you know, starting out as an advisor here, but then this like training and development kind of thing popped up and thinking about like, oh, wow, that might be something that's interesting to me. I'd Mm -hmm. like to help develop these people Mm -hmm. that I work with. And that's an awesome opportunity that just kind of came about and however that happened, right? Mm -hmm. This other opportunity came from that. It's like, Mm -hmm. you don't really see the path Mm -hmm. when you're looking at it from like earlier. Do you know what I mean? Like you only see that path when you're looking back. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so hard for students to grasp. It's so hard for me to grasp even today. (laughs) I'm like, Mm -hmm. how am I going to end up here? (laughs) Like where I want to be. Right. But maybe it's not going to be there. It's going to be somewhere else. That's Mm going to be even better. Yeah. Depending on what kind of comes about in the next few years. Adapting to what life throws at you. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Anyway. Um, awesome. So let's kind of dive into some of the stuff that you're learning about in your mm-hmm. research. So first off, you're doing a lot of different projects. You've done mm-hmm. a lot of different projects over the past couple of years. Uh, just a year. Just a year? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I guess give us a summary of what you're really trying to understand mm-hmm. with college students, specifically in arts and sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, stop. we'll stop there. What are arts and sciences majors? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. For people who you know aren't here at CU, yeah, one of the things that I love about my job that I love about marketing in particular is an ability to help different organizations, different teams tell their story well. This kind of gets back to my creative writing mm-hmm. that um, the parts of creative writing that I enjoy are are telling stories in a point of view that isn't my own. And what's fun about marketing is as I get to vet that storytelling with people like academic coaching where I help you walk through what your brand is and how you might speak to a particular audience, tell a story to a particular audience that resonates. That's a part of my job that's really fun. Mm -hmm. With arts and sciences, it's complicated because we represent 43 different majors in the traditional liberal arts. So at CU Boulder, we don't have separate, um, arts and humanities, social sciences, and natural sciences colleges. They're all together. Uh, That means we have, you know, physics, uh, English, philosophy, political science, economics, chemistry, biochemistry, psych, neuro, (laughs) integrated physiology, um, Jewish studies, the gamut. Um, And um, each one of those majors offers something unique and really compelling to a very defined audience. And so marketing the college as a whole has traditionally been really difficult because engineering just markets engineering, for example, the elites business school markets, marketing or entrepreneurship, um, you know, business management, very specific mm-hmm. quote, air quotes, um, <laughs> business skills. The College of Arts and Sciences markets what amounts to a traditional liberal arts um, curriculum, which is you will study widely uh, a lot of different things uh, with the assumption that that generalization will expose you to points of view that are not your own, to problem-solving skills that are not familiar to you, that might feel unnatural, but make you better as a result. So that's the College of Arts and Sciences. Which is so needed in the future of work. (laughs) Right. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That ability to rapidly adapt—that's the thing that we are, we've been trying to communicate—is, um, and I think um, Kagan, uh, Lena, who's a futurist, uh, a job. Um, 
This is a little interruption because we just wanted to make a correction here. The author of this um, is actually Heather McGowan. Just wanted to correct that really quick. Let's continue. She she talks about the future of work. Did you was that in the um, email recently? In the past yes. Couple, yes. Yeah. I so had, she I have it pulled up because I want to see if she has a book. Because yeah, I she's read got it. a TED talk. Oh, okay. Uh, and she does have a book. I'll link um, it. To, I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. She um so she came and she presented on she she's met with a lot of different high level executives a different a lot just every different kind of company that you can imagine and most people are under the conclusion that in about ten years more or less none of the jobs that exist today will exist, um, that they will be entirely different, that we're stepping into a new industrial revolution that will um, fundamentally alter the way that we engage with our work. And so from her point of view and what a lot of these different executives are finding is technical skills are actually less, they're valuable, they're things that we need, um, but holding just as much value potentially more value is the ability to rapidly adapt, to empathize, and to um, think critically about about your career, because you're going to have to keep changing your skill set. So that technical skill set's useful initially, but it's going to have to change. And so you need to be in a position of as somebody who learns. So she gave a lot of um, energy to what our faculty have been trying to articulate for a long time, which is the you can study everything, you can do anything with mm. these different majors, which is unfortunate. It run it, like one of the things they've learned in marketing is by offering too many choices, you actually basically create no choice. Yeah, but um, it's paralyzing. It's paralyzing. That's probably a lack of a better. It's probably not the best language, but it's called um, it's called cognitive load. That and this is a marketing thing. There's this wonderful YouTube video you can link to this as well <laughs> of a a gorilla. Um, it's called the gorilla video, but it's people passing a basketball and then midway through a gorilla walks through and something like 25%, 30% of people watching it don't see the gorilla because there's so much other oh sensory data being thrown at you. And when you think of our students trying to digest 43 measures, you can do anything uh, that as a result, they just don't hear any of it. So. Yeah. Okay, so let's transition into some of this research because yeah. I'm super excited to hear kind of what you're learning from it. Mm-hmm. I guess in like two or three sentences, can you summarize what the purpose of it is yes. and what you're trying to understand? And then we'll go into what you're learning. Yeah. So, I mean, really, so we've run four studies now. All four are really focused on how students talk about the liberal arts, how they talk about this broad um, opportunity to study as widely as you can. Mm-hmm. That's our that's been the goal. In order to figure out what sort of language and vocabulary we can use, and and from selfishly in our marketing, uh, to talk about the benefits of coming to CU Boulder and studying our wide curriculum to students in a way that they understand that resonates. Uh, so that's been the goal of the studies, basically how we're trying to unlock how we can talk to students uh, because the ways that we had been weren't working. Mm-hmm. Also figure out what the different motivators were for students who did just engage with the liberal arts, who studied, who chose two different majors um, and did so just because they thought it was right or we, we just kind of wanted to understand the, the motivation behind that. 
Um, we also wanted to to understand. So, yeah, okay, I've gone way over my sentences, but um, <laughs> I've gone way beyond my two sentences. So basically, what we're wanting to know is is why students pick the liberal arts, why students actively choose something else, um, especially among students who are being really heavily encouraged to pick something in the liberal arts. Um, because they can't get into engineering or into the business school, what what is the barrier? Mm. Both, what are the barriers to getting there? And then also, what are the uh, what are the reasons people pick it in general? So, for students listening, what do you think is the most helpful that you're learning about students? Mm-hmm. You know, I think the thing that for students in particular, the thing that I have found the most interesting is that, I mean, honestly, people pick uh, their majors for just about every possible reason that you can imagine. And knowing what your reason is, I think, is a good bit of self-reflection. So um, I think there's a desire to box students into um, these particular points of view. And that makes marketing really easy. Uh, But helping students walk through it, even, even for coaches or advisors, helping, helping students walk through what are those motivators that have kept them on the track that they're on, I think is, is useful because I think for some students, they just need permission. They need to give themselves permission or they need a toolkit to give their parents, uh, to explore, to, to, if you are an engineering student to, uh, pick something in the arts, if you're an arts student, to pick something in engineering. There's, I think, if that's if that's you, um, figuring out what those tools are that you need to get permission, I think is something that we can come up with. Um, you know, like we can come up with, like, the ROI for a French major is phenomenal. Um, our French majors make our, the second, they have the second highest average salaries of all of our students, of all of our graduates. Now that is surprising. Um, yeah, super surprising. But why don't, why don't people know this? Because that is right. not the narrative. French majors changed. are worthless. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, no, they, um, French majors on average leave CU, their average salaries over their career are in the 90s. It has a great ROI. Um, part of why so we did run a a persona study and a persona study is basically we we accumulate a lot of data about how particular students talk about the college of arts and sciences and then we kind of push them into these five different points of view and one of the points of view that i think is interesting is that um, several students expressed they loved the structure of high school, that every choice was basically made for them and they could thrive within that really heavily structured environment. And so having a single interest um, is really important to them because it it gives them, like, it's a structured way forward. And in a very loose environment like college, that can feel threatening because you have to do everything. Just about, not everything, but you have to do a lot of things for yourself. Like, well, um, get out of bed in the morning go to class, if you pick your priorities in the way you're going to invest the day, having a single major is something that's resolved. And so picking something else, because it's interesting to you, might actually feel threatening. And I think too, like picking that major that you feel like you understand the path that it's going to take you right right after college, Mm -hmm. that you think, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. is going to take you to that particular career, is actually 
It might not be true. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating. And entirely not true. That it won't your job that you think it's going to take you to won't exist in 10 years. Yeah. It, what, I, what we're trying to discover is yeah. is what, what those motivations are. I think the thing that I'm excited about is the students who pick interdisciplinary majors choose a lot of different reasons. Some students hedge. Some students, um, so like they, they, they want to be competitive for med school. So they pick something that makes them more competitive. Um, some students pick for altruistic reasons. They just love these different fields of study and they, they just want to go after it. Um, and regardless of the motivation for choosing widely over the course of their four years or six years or however long, uh, they synthesize the skills that they're learning in those majors naturally. It just happens um, simply by being a human being with a mind, your brain is trying to tie these pieces of content together. So in your lit classes, those skills you're learning to empathize with somebody um, somehow are woven with, you know, with the um, biochemistry courses where you're doing much more detail-oriented critical thinking, um, where you're kind of going procedure by procedure to unlock a problem. Uh, both of those are woven together studying widely and so to, if you can talking to an advisor or to a coach or to a mentor or somebody who can walk you through the process of adding those wide study in you know to study as widely as you can regardless of how the grades turn out because that content is going into you regardless of whether or not you think it's going into the way into you the way that you think it should it, it benefits our students over the course of their six years. I think that's a huge part of it. And if you need, like, if you're somebody who needs permission to study something, um, it's much more complicated than you think. That being a French major does not mean you're going to teach French for the rest of your life, if that's something you're reticent to do. Um, if you, being an engineer does not mean you're going to be an engineer for the rest of your life. You might end up being a French teacher. Um, so it, it really just depends on that capacity to learn and adapt. And, and that, I guess that's what I would encourage students to, to think through is if something is challenging to you, be encouraged to know that you're learning and that that in and of itself is positive. That's great. I feel like that's actually a great place to end it. Cause I was going to ask you like what, what tips or what thing would you give to students? And I feel like that's totally yeah. <laughs> like that yeah. totally awesome. So. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah. No problem. Thank you all so much for listening to the College Life Podcast. I have all of the things that we mentioned in the show notes, so make sure that you check those out. Also, don't forget to join the email list. I have the email list listed um, as well in the show notes. That way you don't miss another episode. You also are going to get some really cool content from me. I'm not going to overwhelm you with a lot of emails, but you will be getting them on a regular basis from me. And I'd love to just stay in touch. Make sure that you share this episode with a friend if you think it would be helpful. And I will catch you in the next one. Have an excellent week.